0: This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or sign-up required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to shapeshift.io to instantly convert altcoins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sebastien Couture
1: and my name is Brian Fabian Crane. We're here today with uh, Adam Back and Greg Maxwell to anyone who's sort of following Bitcoin and Bitcoin's development, uh, they will probably have heard of of these two uh, gentlemen. Uh, I I was uh, fortunate enough that the first time I went to a Bitcoin conference, sort of at the beginning of my uh, involvement in this space. Uh, It was in Amsterdam in 2013 and somehow randomly I ended up having dinner twice with Adam uh, which was really uh, super fascinating talking with him about Bitcoin and So we're really excited to have them on today uh, especially because we're gonna have a chance to talk about uh, a project that we've actually talked about many times on the show before with different people uh, which is sidechains because sidechains I think everyone is agree in agreement on that. It's definitely one of the most interesting uh, and important projects in the space, and also very controversial. And a lot of people have many questions about it. So today we'll we'll get to ask all of those. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, Day uh, Admin Greg. Hi. And and just, just I
0: just like to say that uh, I mean, it's been so long since we've done sort of a Bitcoin episode. We've been talking so much lately about all kinds of other things, like you know. Bitcoin 2.0 stuff and decentralized apps and all this other, you know, interesting thing, uh, interesting things, but uh, it's nice to just kind of come back to to the roots, right? To the good old, good old Bitcoin. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Maybe uh, Bitcoin 1.1.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Bitcoin (laughs)
1: 1.1. So, well, let's get started right off. Can you guys, um, for those who haven't heard about it or for those who have but want to have sort of re- remember what sidechains are about, what is the main thing that sidechains is trying to accomplish?
2: Yeah, so what sidechains are trying to do is um, address a sort of fundamental limitation we run run into in the Bitcoin space. So the whole Bitcoin network and Bitcoin system works based on consensus. It's this big distributed cryptographic infrastructure that produces a currency as a side effect of all of the computers coming together to agree all on exactly the same thing. Um, And this is quite complicated to get right, but most importantly, it means that we all have to be doing the same thing. And having to do the same thing is really bad for innovation because it basically ends up being that you've got this enormous, difficult to change, distributed system that has to decide on the behavior for everything that's going on in the system. And so if you wanna make an enhancement or add a feature or do something interesting with your Bitcoin that the system doesn't support, uh, you're kinda stuck. You have to convince the rest of the network to add functionality. And that's a difficult way to develop software and it's uh, politically limiting, right? Users shouldn't have to ask the network for permission, even if it's a decentralized network for uh, different ways of using their Bitcoin. So the obvious alternative uh, to sidechains is to, well, let's just start a new cryptocurrency for every kind of application, every new feature set, every new functionality, maybe for every user. And uh, that works from a technical sense, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense from an economic perspective, right? Because money has a sort of value in its scarcity and starting up a new currency for every new feature set you want to deploy, uh, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, and there's also no natural stopping point, right? If someone forks Bitcoin to create FooCoin, well, why won't someone create, fork FooCoin to create BarCoin? And uh, at the end of the day, a bystander looking at cryptocurrency on the sidelines may say, well, I'm not going to get involved in this because it's just constantly getting replaced. So the whole idea with sidechains is we came up uh, now a couple years ago with a very general cryptographic protocol that says you can build an alt chain, like a separate cryptocurrency system, and transfer the Bitcoin values that you already have to and from that system. So you can move your Bitcoin into another chain, transact in it, and uh, gain feature set and capabilities, and uh, move coins back if you want to transact with someone who isn't using that chain. And so this would hopefully unlock innovation and allow you know, more technology to deploy, be deployed in a rapid manner and uh, not have the network acting as a gatekeeper.
0: Now this, like you mentioned, it is a very dividing issue in the community. Some people are for it. Others have come out being sort of against it. And, you know, there are different arguments on each side. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's such it's such a dividing issue within among the community?
2: Well, so maybe I live in a bubble, but I've seen some sort of vocal negative voices, um, some of which are concerned based on uh, things like, uh, you know, any, any change is a potential risk, which is a concern I share. And it's actually one of the motivations for sidechains. So I want to stop having any changes happen to Bitcoin. Uh, so that, that's a one vector of concern. There, there are other people who are uh, quite transparently and, you know, uh, open about the fact that they're concerned because uh, they have investments in competing systems and that sidechains may make Bitcoin more competitive with them. But really, uh, maybe I live in a bubble, but I haven't seen actually a lot of genuine controversy in the technical circles about this. I think the the view of most of the technical people, the really hardcore technical people involved in contributing to the Bitcoin software and really active in the Bitcoin space as opposed to various altcoin systems has been, yeah, this sounds really interesting. If it works, great. And uh, let's see how that works out. So I would say that that's, you know, Cautiously positive rather than controversy, um, from that camp at least.
1: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the concerns that people have are also around the security, and, and we will dive into that in depth today. Uh, one thing that I find uh, really uh, sort of astonishing about the sidechains idea is that, you know, we, we talk of Bitcoin as a Bitcoin with the big B, like the, the network and the technology and the little B. The the value, and then you know you can say oh those two are kind of independent, right? So we have people who develop on top of a network, but we don't use the uh, thing. I think is separated the other way, right? To say uh, we keep using the Bitcoin, the monetary value, but we separate that from the network, and I've, or at least you know to some extent. And I th- I think that's a really um, a really amazing way to to look at this.
2: Well, I would even say that it's interesting to say for, for, mon- for the purpose of a money, you actually money wants to have a monopoly. You know, there, money works better when it's it sort of grows with a very strong network effect, and money wants to have you know few monies, and we get better interop if there's fewer monies. But in terms of methods of transmitting money, we actually want the greatest diversity of that possible. I mean, the way I transmit money to you should be between me and you, and and no one else should have a say in
3: that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know,
3: I mean, I've heard people say something recently. It's become fashionable to say that they like the blockchain, but they don't like Bitcoin or something like that. And I think that is not actually a technologically grounded statement because Bitcoin is the sort of tokenized representation of security in the blockchain. And if you remove, I mean, and and a blockchain is um, uh, distributed data structure that uh provides security and so if you if you take the currency out of it you you collapse the incentive structure of it and you have nothing left basically. So I don't I don't think that particular side comment that uh, I have seen it in the media a few times and maybe some some people have commented on that, but I don't think that's actually correct. Anyway, that was a kind of sidetrack and not directly related to what you said. Yeah. So like you know the Go, going back to what Greg said about uh, being able to extend Bitcoin, so when I first started getting interested in Bitcoin on a technical basis, I came up with some potential ideas and there are a lot of ideas floating around in terms of things people would like to do with Bitcoin. And some of them are quite direct, simple and elegant, useful things to do to Bitcoin and to, you know, fix limitations or... In, prove certain aspects of it, which if, if we had known at the beginning, would have been implemented in a slightly different way. You know, so one example is um, for the value of a transaction to be part of the signed data. So because that's absent, for the kind of offline Bitcoin wallets, they need to drag some transaction history to tell how much money they have, because they're not connected to the network, so they can't see the transaction value. And if you have the value in the transaction, it solves the problem because, I mean, what happens to them if they don't do this extra work is they end up being tricked into spending all of their money to a massive fee transaction or something like that, because they don't actually know how much money they have. Whereas if the value being spent is in the signature, you know, that has to be accurate and the blockchain itself will enforce that's the case. And so there's there's a simple fix. If we could do a hard fork, it would be easy to do that but hard forks are difficult in a consensus network and it's it's a live system, so you can't just, you know, there's no, there's no kind of beta protocol. So I, I had some other ideas to go with those, like um, being able to encrypt the values so that you can get, uh, you can still have blockchain validation, but without leaking commercial confidentiality, which is something I think businesses would want to have in order to do, you know, actual share trading or company transactions on them at scale. And so I got excited about, you know, could could we get this, could could we, could we explore adding this to Bitcoin? And I, I came to realize that, that's actually quite demanding and challenging to do that. And so then I became interested, well, you know, could we, ins- so I started focusing instead on how could we ex- have a general extension mechanism for Bitcoin? And that's when I started talking some time ago now about the one way peg and Articulate this two-way peg mechanism, which needs um, a soft fork to Bitcoin to enable is so that you can have uh, innovation on the blockchain without affecting this kind of, uh, you know, software risk factor. So, I mean, if you, if you look at sort of internet history, I mean, when the um, World Wide Web first started and you had HTTP 1.0, you know, there there was lots of very rapid innovation on the protocol. And given, you know, some people draw analogies between Bitcoin and the web and the internet and so on. And if you look at um, Bitcoin versus web technology at at what people are presuming is a similar early phase of adoption, there was way faster, rapid experimental development going on. And so the Bitcoin core can't really directly accommodate that kind of, rate of change, even though the demand is probably there to see some of it. So this is not to say that the Bitcoin core is not changing. If you go look at the GitHub, a number of things are changing, but they're changing in a kind of focused, you know, consensus-preserving, sort of critical bug-fixing priority first and less on the wide-ranging, nice-to-have, nice sort of next-generation ideas. Because um, you have to, you know, to, to control software rescue tend to have to proceed in small carefully validated steps or
1: something like that. So uh, one of the main criticisms has been that if, you know, if you have if you have a thousand different side chains and a lot of them only have a very small amount of hashing power mining that chain it would be very easy and basically free because it's merged mined for any mining pool to attack any smaller sidechain And so it's not really clear how the security of the sidechains would work. So essentially, I guess that the risk scenario would be, right, that somebody holds coins on the sidechain. They use those coins uh, to get back the coins that have been suspended to move money in the sidechain. And then they would go back and uh, do essentially a 51% attack and sort of... uh, essentially it would be able to steal the money from other people in the sidechain.
3: Right, yeah. I mean, so uh, a sidechain, so there are sort of, I guess to say, two phases of a sidechain. So the first phase is maybe a loosely coupled phase. And in that model, the Bitcoin network is an SPV client of the sidechain. And so if you look at the existing security limitations of being an SPV wallet in the Bitcoin network, the majority of the hash rate of miners could convince you that you've received money that you haven't really, basically, right? Yeah, so, so
2: some context. Um, sidechains provide a somewhat different security model than Bitcoin by itself. But the differences are kind of subtle. Uh, because in the long term, um, Bitcoin miners could also attack the Bitcoin system and they, they lose out the transaction fees they would get uh, otherwise. And that's, that's also true in sidechains. The difference is sort of the magnitude of what can happen when you attack. So in, in uh, Bitcoin, in, in, uh, miners who attack the network will lose out on the, on the transaction fees, but all they can do is double spend unless they do a really long attack that rewrites a large chunk of the chain, in which case they can steal all the coins as well. Um, so there's some subtle differences there. In the case where a, a sidechain is, side is an SPV wallet, like an Android wallet or multibit, or many of the common, or Electrum, the common wallets that people use today. And so what what sidechains do is they, they trust the miners mining on the sidechain implicitly, like an SPV wallet trusts the miners of Bitcoin implicitly. And that means that a large hash power attack that reorganizes a sidechain could potentially steal coins that are stored on the sidechain and not just double-spend them.
3: So, I mean, it, this relates to, so you're... Your, some of your readers would be familiar with um, soft forks, right? So there's a way that has been that has evolved since Bitcoin started to introduce a software change in Bitcoin that is backwards compatible, and so I'll just outline that briefly because it relates to this discussion. So um, the idea is that if you look at the network has multiple versions of software in it, right? So let's say the current version of software. Um, there's a, an operation code called optrue, and if, if there are uh, Bitcoins with an optrue script attached to them, that basically means that anybody can take the coins. You know, whoever can get to the miner first to get the transaction uh, verified and validated by the miner will receive the coins. So, in practice, that typically would mean that the miners will take the coins. Now, you can do those today, but people tend not to do them because you'll instantly lose the coins. But the fact that the OPT2 transaction exists and it can have uh, parameters after it that will be ignored uh, is the kind of seed of an upgrade, a backwards compatible upgrade mechanism that can be pushed out into the network. And so how that would work is say that we want to introduce a new type of transaction with a particular feature. So we will... Um, Put up true and some parameters that describe this transaction, you know, who the current owner is, or say we want to introduce a new signature algorithm, like a Schnorr signature or something. So it's a kind of crude example, so some very technical people might be cringing, but I just want to illustrate the point. So this signature is in the extension field, and the miners that have become interested to support this new feature look at the extended information and they have a narrow interpretation of what opt-true means. It doesn't mean anybody can take. It means to them, anybody can take if they have this Schnorr signature with the public key that's listed in the extended opcode. And so basically, once the mining of this, the number of miners who understand this extended interpretation has reached a decent number, let's say 90%, then the feature can be turned on and the miners would reject attempts to take that coin by somebody who doesn't understand these extra rules. So if I as a naive user go and say, oh there's a Bitcoin, anybody can take it, let me take it, the miners would censor that transaction because I don't, I've ignored these extended meanings after it. So this
2: software mechanism has been used um, several times. It was used by BIP-16, uh, BIP-34, and we've used it We've BIP-30. We've used it to um, fix bugs and upgrade the Bitcoin system in the past. So it's, it's nothing new. Uh, and it's just a mechanism that allows us to extend the system in a way that's backwards compatible.
3: Right. And so what? why I was bringing that up is if you look at... So, I mean, the idea of sidechains is to allow innovation and upgrade and so on. So if you look at the way that Bitcoin currently upgrades itself, it's using this kind of soft fork mechanism. And if you look at what's going on in the network when a soft fork is in effect, there are maybe two or three kinds of users, right? There's the miners who have upgraded to a version of the protocol that understands these extended meanings. There's a small number of miners who haven't get upgraded yet. And if they say anything contradictory with these rules, their their, their blocks would be rejected by the hash rate majority. And then you've got users who, you know, some users have upgraded and some users haven't, who are just clients, right? And so as a user with a client who hasn't upgraded, you can receive an op2. A, a transaction that was formally controlled by what looks to you like an opt address. So you think, well, that's lucky. Somebody decided to grab that transaction that anybody could spend and spend it to me. But what's really going on is that some extended feature allowed that, right? And so if you look at it from the point of view of the number of users who are still on the old version of the protocol, they are susceptible to a 51% attack. You know, 51% of the network could just grab an opt-true transaction, or all of them, and pay it to itself, right? And... The people who don't understand the protocol upgrade would suffer that security downgrade. So you can look at a sidechain as uh, basically the same thing. It's it's more modular, so it's on a separate chain. But for people who don't understand the sidechain, when they receive payments from it, it just looks as if you know somebody grabbed something uh, that they understand in a simplified way, and they're the lucky beneficiaries of that, right? So I think there's you know, It's just to say that this is actually much more similar to the way Bitcoin works than people are imagining when they say that sidechains are less secure than Bitcoin. Because actually when there's a protocol upgrade using a soft fork in Bitcoin, the security properties are essentially the same as adding a protocol upgrade in a sidechain, which is if you're not with the program, if you're not validating these things, you can be fooled by the hash rate majority. And so at any given time, in a period after a soft fork in Bitcoin and there are presumably still lots of clients you know running on the Bitcoin network who haven't upgraded from previous soft forks who could right now be fooled by a hash rate majority on Bitcoin. So
1: it's not, it's not changing as much as people imagine it's changing. So, so you, the, up through, the up through basically it looks to someone who hasn't upgraded it looks like this is coins I can just take. Right. And then is the idea that, but if the majority uh, of the miners are aware of sidechains, are aware of this upgrade, then they will know that if somebody takes that coin that appears to just lie there to be spendable and tries to spend it, they know that's invalid and they will reject it. So as long as more than half are using the new software, um, y- you know, those rules. Uh, of of the upgrade will be respected and people who in the old, they will be confused and, and maybe try to take the money, but it won't work. That's, that's how softworks work. And it really has to be more than just
2: a strict majority or there's network instability potentially as a result. But, but that's, the, that's the idea.
3: Initially, I mean, there are kind of soft uh, flag days. Greg could explain it maybe in more detail, but you know, when the version, you know, this uh, feature is implemented, part of the code that introduces the feature uh, there's like a block number version increase. And so all full nodes can look at this block version and the from it they can estimate the proportion of miners that are with the program, that understand the new feature because you know, 90% of the blocks that seem to be being mined in this time interval are on this new version. That tells them that it's now relatively safe to use the feature. So it tends to get deployed in a kind of two-stage thing where it's in the network but nobody would create one of those blocks until the hash rate reaches its what what has been deemed an acceptable uh, mining ratio, you know, minor understanding ratio, and then those transactions are safe to use. I mean, if you use them before, there's a possibility that somebody could just say, "Oh, well, I'll take that coin. It looks like anybody can take it, right?" So it's deemed that it's not safe to use it until this software-understood proportion of miners understands it.
1: So, so this this uh, sort of explains how it deals with the thing that, right? Because when you move a Bitcoin to a sidechain, you're sort of like suspending it and it's lying there. And, and you know, this deals with that thing. But um, can we come back to the question of the merged mining? So one thing that
2: often comes up in sidechains discussion is that there's this assumption that Sidechains have to be merged mine, and, and that really isn't true. I mean the sidechains white paper is also quite explicit about this, that merge mining is an option for sidechains, but it's a it's a design option that each sidechain could choose to use or not use. Um, I think it's almost always a prudent option, so we talk about that a lot. Um, but it's not it's not fundamentally necessary. The issue that comes up with merge mining that often gets cited is that um, in, in the case of merge mining, uh you don't have kind of a hardware capital cost because you're already, you have that hardware to mine Bitcoin. And so the the uh, incentive versus attacking is basically, do you make more money attacking versus mining honestly? Um, and you don't have to worry about, you know, this upfront cost of the hardware. I think normally when we analyze Bitcoin security, we kind of ignore the upfront cost of the hardware just due to latent hash power and, uh, you know, things like, Purchase cloud mining that you can buy mining on demand. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that merge mining isn't isn't really essential to the uh,
3: side proposal because um, uh, it, it does often come up. So so then going back to comparing, like software upgrades in the in the Bitcoin blockchain, and a sidechain, which is another kind of protocol upgrade, right? Now you could um, re like rearticulate the situation of a soft fork upgrade to say that the people who have upgraded, you know, so the subset of the Bitcoin network that's upgraded, you could view that as an in-chain sidechain, right? There's a subset of people who understand an extended feature. That's exactly what sidechains do. And the people who have not upgraded and aren't aware of those rules are susceptible to losing their coins to a dishonest hash majority that does understand those features. And so basically, a sidechain is a sort of, if you want to express it that way, a generalization and modularization of that existing behi- like upgrade behavior.
2: So to make that more concrete, um, one of the advantages of sidechains is that by making the Bitcoin network effectively an SPV client of the sidechain network, we get very loose coupling so that the problems on the sidechain network don't leak into the Bitcoin network. But we get that at a cost of a different security model, that hash rate on the sidechain network can steal all these coins when uh, normally the hash rate you'd have to compete with is the hash rate on the Bitcoin network. Now, if there's merge mining and there are transaction fees, hopefully these tr- these hash rates are relatively equal. But well, maybe they're not. Um, and there's some different models that you can think about how Bitcoin should be secure. Like, should Bitcoin be secure, as Satoshi said, uh, if you know uh, 51% of the, the hash rate is honest? Or should we require something stronger like, um, evidence that the, the economic incentives are such that 51% of the hash rate will be honest. Uh, you know, not an assumption, taking that assumption away and using the economics. And so there's a risk that if you've got the sidechain thing where you could potentially mine Bitcoin honestly and attack the, the sidechain, uh, that it might be in your economic interest to do so. And so that's a, that's a byproduct of this loose coupling. But one of the things pointed out in the sidechain white paper is that this loose coupling isn't inherent. You can sort of pick your degree of looseness. So one possible um, outcome for sidechains, and there are several different ways the sidechain security can be boosted with complex cryptography that we can talk about for hours, but one of the pathways is to say, well, the Bitcoin network could, like a regular soft rule, enforce the validity of sidechain blocks. So the Bitcoin network, the Bitcoin hash rate, the Bitcoin miners, won't allow you to make a sidechain recovery transaction unless the sidechain says you can do this. Now, there's a downside. and It's listed as a risk in the sidechain's white paper. That now this introduces sort of the complexity of the sidechain into the consensus model of the Bitcoin network. So it it tightens up that coupling that was previously loose. But on the flip side, it makes the security uh, story basically the same as the Bitcoin security story, where uh, if the miners of Bitcoin
3: are not totally blowing up the system, the coins can't be stolen. So, I mean, yeah, conc- conc- concretely, that would mean that you know you go through a loosely coupled phase where you know, let's say 85% of the miners are merge mining, and so those miners have both a Bitcoin D and a Sidecoin D, but there are separate consensus rules running in there right? And when you if But but they actually have the information, right? So if an attack was going on where somebody was collecting Bitcoin reward but attacking the sidechain, the miner actually has the information there, right? He's already running the daemon, and the sidechain daemon is saying, wait, wait, that's, that's an incorrect block. You know, somebody's taking something that they don't own or what have you. And so you can at some point do a soft fork, and what soft fork looks like is just to tie the consensus together so that the Bitcoin D says okay, this is a valid Bitcoin block, but it also wants a response from the sidechain daemon that the associated merge mine block on the sidechain is also valid according to the sidechain. And if it requires both of those to be valid, then it's uh, equivalent to a soft fork. I mean, you would get the same outcome if the sidechain logic were copied into the Bitcoin codebase, it's just in a separate daemon.
1: But doesn't this get rid of uh, one of the main arguments for sidechains, which is that you can have all this experimentation without introducing risk to Bitcoin. Right. I mean, this seems to introduce a lot of risks.
3: So, I mean, if you, there are two kinds of risks. So, what, one kind of risk is uh, a consensus risk that the code in the sidechain is more complicated. I mean, it's, well, there's three. I mean, there's also just a sheer complexity risk, right? But if that's packaged up in the daemon with process separation, your uh, kind of complexity and security risk can be managed. The other, the other kind of risk is a consensus risk. So I think as long as the sidechain dimming was deterministic, maybe you don't care so much. But because it's a generic binary, it's hard to be sure of uh, determinism. You know, maybe it has some random factor or random bug that on, you know, uh, some operating systems it says one thing and on another operating system it says the conflicting thing. And if Bitcoin is relying on that, it could fork the network, so that becomes dangerous. And so what you really need is to impose determinism on the the experimental or extended code that goes in sidechains. You need a robust way to enforce determinism, and that's where abstract virtual machines that are security focused, like Moxie and Moxiebox, come into the picture. So what
2: that that is is the notion that you can have the code that runs for the sidechain run in a very simple CPU simulator, a simple virtual machine, kind of like um, the Bitcoin script system that um, is exactly the same on all of the Bitcoin hosts. And that allows you to be very sure that the sidechain validating code runs identically on all of the systems. And um, so this allows you to get around this risk to the consensus from non-determinism. There's another point here, which is that Yes, tightening the coupling does weaken the argument for sidechains somewhat. But what's nice is that you have this sort of on-ramp where you can develop a new sidechain. Um, the security story is weaker than Bitcoin's security story, but you don't, have to, you don't have to cooperate with anyone. You don't have to get anyone else to run it. You just go. And then if that becomes widely used and the security is, becomes important and everyone is using and depending on it, then it would be reasonable to say, okay, well, this system is reasonable. Everyone is using it anyways. Now we'll just regard it as an upgrade to Bitcoin. And then we can use tools like deterministic virtual machines to make it a safe upgrade to Bitcoin, uh, even safer than the, the changes we've been making in the past.
0: Well, we've got more, lots more to talk about. Uh, I'd like to come back to use cases and uh, talk about economics, also Bitcoin core development, and also talk about you know your company, Blockstream, uh, that's working on all this. But first... Let's talk about Shapeshift, our sponsor for today's show. Uh, Shapeshift is the fast and easy way to buy and sell altcoins. They support, uh, I think, over uh, fifteen altcoins now, and uh, you can get started by with Shapeshift by. Oh, that's wrong. <laughs> you can get started with Shapeshift by going to Shapeshift.io and uh, using their currency conversion tool to convert all the altcoins to support uh, into any other altcoin of your choice. So for today's demo, uh, well, we're going to show you the uh, Shapeshift Lens um, uh, Google Chrome uh, extension. And I wanted to tip, actually, I thought this would be fitting for today's show, I want to tip Nicolas Courtois for writing uh, for his excellent article, Saving Bitcoin from Destruction. Right here. So uh, I suggest everybody read this article. It's on uh, better blog.bettercrypto.com. Nico.Courtois, of course, is a well-known cryptographer and, and a supporter of, uh, of the sidechain's uh, proposal. And I'm going to tip him for his article. So if you go to the bottom of his website, he's got a donate button right here. And I'm going to use uh, Dogecoin to tip him on its Bitcoin address. So I've uh, clicked on the donate button. I've got the little Fox icon right here. I can click it. Oh, And um, the demo gods are not, <laughs> are not with us today. That's okay. I can just take the address, go to Shapeshift and I'm going to say, I want to send Dogecoin to Bitcoin. I'm going to paste the address here. Hit start and then scan the address. And there we go. I'll send them a dollar. Now it's just awaiting wait ex- the exchange in just a few seconds that uh, there we go. So it's awaiting exchange now. So as I said, it support uh, a bunch of different altcoins. They're adding altcoins every week. Again, I rec- really
1: recommend uh, this article. Have you guys read it? No, I haven't. But uh, it seems to be worth at least uh, one dollar in Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. And so we're just waiting
0: exchange now and it should be completed in just a few seconds.
1: Yeah, so the nice thing is you can sort of be your own payment processor, like your uh, reverse payment processor, like, you know, BitPay goes from crypto, Bitcoin to fiat, you can be like, you're on your end to go from whatever to whatever other cryptocurrency they support.
0: It's taking a little bit longer for today, I don't, I don't know why. Yeah, so Shapeshift, you know, it's a fast and easy way to convert your uh, Bitcoin to any altcoins or vice versa, and uh, you don't even need to create an account. This is the great thing about it is that your uh, privacy is protected and they only take a small fee for uh, their services and that's integrated in the amount uh, that you uh, that you transfer up front. So uh, head over to shapeshift.io, give it a try, tell us what you think. And we'd like to thank them for their support of Epicenter Bitcoin.
1: Now before, uh, when we just briefly discussed before the show, Uh, you mentioned the increase in block size, right? So that's the way I guess this merged mining uh, would be accomplished. here. Can you explain how that will work?
3: So another way to look at a sidechain is this other thought experiment which is could you increase the block size without doing a hard fork? Like, Could you soft fork in a block size increase? And perhaps surprisingly to some people actually you could and the way that would work is that you have the Bitcoin block, which is say one megabyte, and you introduce an extension block, which is 10 megabytes, or if you want to take it to the extreme, like a gigabyte or something huge, so that you can think about the centralization side effects of actually practically doing it. So you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, the one megabyte block has a uh, Merkle tree, some kind of data structure representing all the transactions in it. And there there are ways to sort of add links into that which are ignored by people who don't understand the links. So you can sort of add a hook in at the bottom of the one megabyte block tree to a whole other tree. So let's say a tree for a 10 megabyte or even a gigabyte block could be hooked in there. And then you could consider adding a new uh, transaction version and people who have upgraded software could look at and understand the transactions in this extension block. And then, um, you know, so if the majority of miners are receiving these transactions or under- and understanding them, they can facilitate people who wanted to, do, you know, do transactions that wouldn't fit in one megabyte because they're very low value transactions or the transactions that are currently happening off the blockchain, for example, in uh, exchanges and so on. That um, then they could have a hope of fitting into this larger extension block with some other trade-offs. And um, so it's easy for an existing Bitcoin user to pay to an extension block address because it would just look like a a P2SH address or something. They don't really need to understand too much about the criteria of the recipient because how the recipient spends their money using some extended rules and parameters is their problem. The sender can send money to other people. The harder part is to think about uh, how somebody in the extension block could send a Bitcoin to somebody who only understands the one megabyte block. And how that works goes back to what we were saying about how soft forks work, which is that you have uh, transactions and coins resting on what looks like an opt-true address, right? So from the one megabyte block's point of view, if people don't understand the extension, there might be one suspiciously large true address that holds all of the coins in the extension block, which could be a lot of coins. And so if they had to receive a payment, it would just look like somebody decided to send a fraction of a Bitcoin from this huge Bitcoin address that anybody could take, that for some reason the system decided to assign to them. And they might have a go at taking those coins, but of course the miners understanding the, the full details of the extension block would block any such attempt. And so you have the similar kind of thing, but in-chain now with an extension block. Um, and so in addition to allowing you know, different block frequency and different block sizes, the more interesting thing perhaps is that you could um, put additional features in an extension block. So it could be extended to do some of the same kinds of things that people are interested in sidechains to do, such as you know support additional types of assets representing shares or other other things that people are interested in you know smart property and so forth and it could support you know extended smart contracts or zero cash or whatever else people are interested to experiment with and again for software risk and determinism so you'll notice there's a difference there when we said really to to get the best assurance of security on a soft forked sidechain, you would want to put the sidechain code in a box like environment. You notice that that hasn't so far been described for the extension block. So the code that is validating the extension block is in the same code area and has access to shared memory or something as the Bitcoin D. And so that introduces an element of software complexity risk. So you can observe that you could run the validation rules for the extension block could also run in a moxiebox container, and I think you would have similar reasons for arguing that that should be done to control software risk. Uh, the, the point here is that when you can think of
2: this sort of extension block line of thinking and realize that in the extreme end case where the rules have been soft forked in in a side chain, the extension block and the side chain are effectively the same thing. Right. Um, So it's sort of another line of thinking to get to the same kind of potential approach to handling
3: these things.
1: So if I may jump in here, so you were talking of a Bitcoin client, like Bitcoin D, and then there would be the sidechain D. Doesn't that mean there has to be an agreement of like the sidechain D, like what that client does? So uh, does that mean there's one sidechain client that may have, let's say, zero cash and, and micropayments and different block sizes, et cetera, but there has to be an agreement on what's in there, or like, how would someone go about creating a new sidechain and, and putting it in there?
2: Um, now, the behavior of it would be defined by the sidechain daemon itself, and in the case where Bitcoin is actually enforcing the sidechain's rules for transactions, there would just be a simple RPC between the two daemons where... Sidechain D says, yep, this, this, this sidechain block is valid. So if it tells you to spend coins, you can spend coins. And that, that's what the sidechain would tell Bitcoin and vice versa. Um, so the, the software would still be separate in the case of a sidechain, even if it were soft forked into the
3: system. Right. So the observation is you can be soft forked. I mean, the soft fork just means that a block has to be valid for both versions or both points of view to be accepted because that means if somebody tries to you know, put an invalid sidechain block or take some coins that the sidechain rules don't allow them to take, they wouldn't be able to pass that second test. And if the Bitcoin D is soft with the sidechain D, it won't allow that because the sidechain D says, no, that's an invalid block, right? So that would punish people. If you consider the extension block case, um, and you could have multiple extension blocks, and the, um, each extension block could, would be implemented in Moxibox scripts. So the definition of uh, an extension block is basically, you know, a, the uh, SHA two fifty six hash of the bytecode that represents, you know, the compiled version of its validation. Then you can have um, quite good assurance in a sidechain-like way. Because the other aspect of a sidechain is it provides a security firewall so that, you know, the only people who with coins at risk of the validation rules being in some way limited or defective is people who put coins into it. So you would have that kind of assurance between extension blocks. And you could, you could argue that this may provide a, a path forward for Bitcoin to improve its security. So earlier we talked about the fact that whenever Bitcoin goes to a soft fork as some feature has been added to it, and as Greg mentioned, this has happened a few times in Bitcoin, there's a transition period where you know, some subset of the users have not yet upgraded, and you know, some of them never upgrade, and those people are at some degraded security level, such that um, the ability to do a soft fork admits change to the network. And if you have a Moxie box like container and you can put the validation code in it, in the longer term, perhaps you can put the main blockchain's validation code into a Moxie box container and then basically what's left in the core is much simpler, it's a moxie box interpreter and some basic thing about you know, choosing the longest block. All right. And so if, if we can do that and we have much simpler core code, we can reach a higher level of software assurance and disallow further soft forks, which is actually um, you know, a, a security enhancement for the blockchain because if, as a user who is not, you know, keeping up to date and understanding these new extensions, or you know, basically, you could view soft forks as allowing miners to, giving them additional power to uh, propose rules. I mean, it's not a black and white thing, but it does slightly elevate the ability of miners to uh, bring soft forking rules into the network. So it would be possible, technically, to block further soft forks, and if you have, uh, you know, moxybox extension blocks which can be added into the network, that, that becomes an upgrade mechanism that doesn't need soft risk because it's still within network, right? It's, it doesn't require a core change. You can introduce a new extension block and all you need is the interpreter of the MoxieBox byte string and the longest chain rules. And then you can move coins between them via the core or directly. So these are these are just general
2: ideas that they're they're not concrete yet and they're not in the immediate future. But it's been um, some of this thinking has been circulating for a while. So from the Bitcoin Core perspective, we've been working on uh, reorganizing the code base so that it's better, it's easier to isolate the code, so that the that easier to isolate the code that implements the consensus algorithm. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is because it makes it possible to try out things like moving the whole of the consensus algorithm into a byte-coded virtual machine to get better assurances about the consistency of the consensus in the network. Um, so this couples into that. So you can take that idea and extend it more broadly and make it so that you can extend the network also through adding more code that runs in this very rigid virtual machine and, uh, and uh, you know, not have such an you know, ad hoc process for extending the system.
1: So we, w- we want to talk a little bit more about the sort of economics and, and, and big picture questions of that, but um, perhaps to bring this down to a level that is a bit more like graspable for people in concrete, um, can we get into some of that? Like, For example, how would a sidechain then be created in, in this kind of scenario where uh, they'd be run as, as these extension blocks?
3: So, I mean, somebody would write some codes, carefully validate it, maybe get other people to audit it and sign, you know, make a digital signature, like you have code signing, so you could have code in in existing systems. Um, And then they would start to transfer, you know, publish that in the blockchain and start to transfer coins in it. And other people who were interested in the features of that chain would do likewise and benefit from those features but it's kind of opt-in and, you know, people with coins in the main blockchain or other extension blocks are not affected by some kind of, you know, subtle bug in the uh, validation of a brand new extension block or something like that. So the, the point that Adam was making is that
2: they would actually, in this sort of grand extreme version of this idea. You would actually have the capability to publish your new crypto system rules as a special kind of transaction and says, okay, I'm defining, I'm creating a new extension block and here's its rules. And you would just advertise this into the network and it would get mined into the network like any other transaction. And then people could continue to uh, send funds and interact with these new rules that have been introduced that run in this sandbox in the network.
1: But, but does that mean the rules will have to fit into a transaction?
2: They'd have to fit into a specially formed transaction for it, which is why it's very important that the, the bytecode for this be, be succinct. Um, so you'd have to implement the rules in, in the context of it. But a transaction you know, can, can technically be a megabyte in the, in the Bitcoin system today. So that's, that's actually quite a bit of code. And it's more code that go, than is in the current Bitcoin consensus code right now.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, I was going to say something else, which is that, you know, in in an ideal world, Bitcoin would have been born like bug free, perfect, complete, extensible, and the core could have been frozen and soft forks disallowed by some technical mechanism. So Mm. this this is basically a, a sort of long term track to arrive at that position. You want right, to get closer to that position. Because I mean, Bitcoin has a set of features and rules which are fundamental to its meaning. And nobody wants those to change, obviously, right? I mean, the key point
2: here is that if Bitcoin, we have this sort of twin pulling, right? Where in one direction, if Bitcoin can change, it means it can change out from under people and potentially compromise the promises it made to them about the, their autonomy and control of their money. But if Bitcoin can't change, then it's mortar bound and can't adapt to people's new needs for their money. And so what Adam's trying to talk about here is how do you push the system into a case where there's a, a rigid core part, which we can use everything in our power to prevent from changing at all. And so everyone can depend on that, but still have enough extensibility
1: so that when people need to do functionality, that it's not, it's not precluded. So I would like to talk about an idea that seems to me, at least listening and and talking to you as well, Adam, uh, and hearing you speak about this in in other contexts, that seems to be very central um, to what you guys are doing at Blockstream and what Sidechains is about, which is uh, this idea of digital scarcity. Why is that important?
3: So I think uh, much earlier, Greg had mentioned, actually, I'm not sure if that was in the Prequel or not, but the idea that you know money is a kind of social network, so it, it benefits from network effects. And you know, at the extreme, if if everybody has their own money supply, it ceases to make have meaning because that's basically an IOU. And you know, there's no limit, right? I can print an IOU up to the limit of what people are willing to trust me with, and so that's no longer scarce at all. And in between we have maybe a situation where, so I think, it, I think it's useful for there to be digital scarcity in a sense I think you mean, in because you know, if we have too many forks, so we start with Bitcoin, there were some early altcoins let's say, and they grew a bit and then somebody forked them. And if, if that were to, you know, if Bitcoin were to disappear and all we were to left with is a constantly sort of growing to a certain viable size and then forking because of competition, it would be an unattractive proposition. Bitcoin would lose, you know, the properties of money about, unit you know, of account, medium of exchange, the store of value. Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency that's left would lose its store of value because, you know, the bubbles pop every three months or something. And that, that would be, you know, that would be bad. It would lose some of its security because it's not a long-term stable thing. It would lose its store of value property and it may fail to reach unit of account property, which needs, you know, uh, wider use and sort of uh, less volatility, which would come with, uh, you know, more unified use.
2: There, there's another point to this where, uh, there certainly are applications for cryptocurrency technology that don't don't involve any scarcity scarcity at all, but the networks themselves involve some scarcity, right? The, a network, particularly a global broadcast network like a blockchain, has a limited capacity, whatever that capacity is, right? Computers can only handle so much, and if you make it too big, the decentralization goes away. So, um, one of the things you can do with a scarce asset you can't do with a non-scarce asset. Is you can align the incentives. You can say, okay, well, to use my resources, you have to pay me. Uh, you have to pay me some some money of some kind. And because money is scarce, I know you can't uh, you can't unfairly exhaust all of my resources you know, because you're just printing an infinite supply of money.
3: Actually, yeah, that's interesting. So um, the other, the other thing that people sometimes wonder about is, could you, you know, start a a new cryptocurrency or add support for other types of assets into a cryptocurrency? And then use those other assets that are issued by people or businesses or what have you as fees. And I think there's a fundamental limitation, which is a blockchain can't validate the scarcity of something that's issued by humans, right? So, you know, if if I issued a coin in my garage or something um, and I used it as fees, I could completely flood the network because you know tomorrow I could decide to print a billion of them and saturate the network so that nobody else could conduct transactions and the problem is the network has no way to know whether I'm somebody just playing around or trying to create mischief or a reputable business or bank that has you know some client funds or gold on deposit or something it's not something it can validate so for fees are basically to make the network work smoothly and to prevent denial of service and to sort of allocate resources in the network. And for that to be the case, they need to be something directly machine readable and understandable. Like the fact that it's scarce has to be validatable, right? So if we if we have like lots of people creating things just definitionally, that won't be the case. And it, it also, I guess, won't tend to be the case in new independent networks that spring up because you know, they tend to come with larger and larger numbers of points, like a trillion coins or more, or what have you, right? So those are not, they lose their scarcity sort of definitionally at some point.
1: So scarcity also in that way is, is a kind of element, uh, so absolutely necessary for, for true decentralization, no? Because if you, uh, if you don't have that, right. then in a sense you depend on an issue or something. Good observation yeah. And and one of the things and, and I don't know if you guys share that um, share that view but one of the things I find kind of interesting so like let's say bitcoin has achieved a certain success today as a store value and and the question is like how far can that go right like will we ever for example be able to say like I I keep my savings in bitcoin as sort of a prudent person not someone who is like a, a crazy risk taking Uh, And it seems to me that maybe Bitcoin is the only chance, right? Because let's say Bitcoin doesn't work out. Or let's say we we sort of hope Bitcoin's going to be it. uh, But then somehow Bitcoin fails. There's the next thing. And and then that's it. Uh, But the thing is, if Bitcoin isn't it, so if it wasn't like the first one, and now this is the one that's going to sort of represent a digitally scarce unit of value, then wouldn't there always be the fear or the possibility that there's going to be something else later that's maybe better, right? So I, I think maybe also from that perspective, the idea of having a purely digital uh, uh, sort of value is sort of tied to Bitcoin. Did you, did you see that the same way?
2: Yeah, I, I think that I, so from the very first beginning that I got involved with Bitcoin, I somewhat felt that, this was sort of, as a cypherpunk, this was kind of our one chance to get a worldwide used by practical people digital currency. Because if it fails, uh, if it fails, people won't sign up for the successor, right? Because they won't sign up because they won't trust it. They won't sign up because, you know, they'll just be waiting for the next successor, right? The point you were making. And, uh but at the same time, Bitcoin, uh, you know, as released in the very first version, couldn't be something that replaced all of our fiat money in the, you know, Bitcoins just another digital kind of more fair fiat money. It couldn't replace the other fiat monies out there because it didn't have the right properties. It had a lot of the properties, but it didn't have the scale and the flexibility that you can get with, uh, you know, insecure issued kind of fiat monies that exist in the world today. So that is a lot about what sidechains is about, is about how do we preserve Bitcoin as the, the, the first one, the thing that has the, the irreplaceable unique starting position as being this you know, surprise technological marvel, and, uh, but, but expand it out so that it can cover uh, the whole world and be used in many more applications.
3: Right. I mean I don't see, you know, as as we can see already the viability of sidechains and extension blocks and other potential extension mechanisms any reason to suppose if somebody finds some um, useful extensions, some useful ex, uh, scaling improvements or additional features, you know, the ability to support other asset types, why there's no fundamental reason that it can't be added to bitcoin. You know, if it's useful, it should be added. Right? I mean yeah, you know, so when we talk sure. about like network effects and internet and so on, that that arose because everybody built around an interoperable, neutral standard, and I think Bitcoin is also has the property of being neutral. There's no proprietary ownership or control or sort of vested interest that's centralised associated with it.
1: So, so one thing we've been talking about uh, quite a few times in recent episodes, so uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of uh, Robert Sams and his paper on uh, seniority shares. And we talked with this about with Vitalik uh, of Ethereum as well, is the idea of a, a stable cryptocurrency. So, um, you know, there's the question of to what extent is volatility a problem? And to what extent is volatility going to go down as Bitcoin is more adopted? Personally, I think volatility will remain high for a long time, even if Bitcoin gets very widely adopted. So the the kind of idea of maybe Bitcoin's going to be relatively fine as a store of value, but if you talk of a unit of account, um, I have some doubts that this will ever be stable enough. Uh, So what do you guys think of that? And what do you think of the idea of um, stable cryptocurrencies?
3: So I don't know so much about the... Sort of, you know, funky things where there's some sort of algorithm and reserve pool that implements a conventional currency peg, you know, that tries to prop the price up by buying. Because, um, you know, I talked to some people with an economics background about that, and they were saying that if you look at the uh, existing financial system, typically when those things arise, they're unstable and collapse. You know, they're often constructed as uh, synthetic assets built from derivatives in the underlying asset and you have a problem that the the market for the synthetic is different as, as a smaller market and there's an element of belief and trust so somebody can bet against it and you saw this where george soros bet against the british pound and and you saw it more recently with the swiss franc right there, there was some loss of um you know confidence or they felt that they had gone as far as they wanted to go or whatever reasons they abandoned the peg so, uh, sort of conventional currency peg and so even automated systems will tend to have that problem that somebody could decide to bet against it and you know the the algorithm is fully laid out so you yeah. can decide to do that so yeah. so many of the specific propo- I, haven't, I may not have seen the specific
2: proposal you were referring to, ones I've seen in the past often had problems where the the algorithmic behavior could be rigged by minor censorship of data in the blockchain. Um, so there were some really interesting ways to game it. Um, but, but, you know, if people want to experiment with technology like that, um, more power to them, right? It, maybe it's possible, maybe it's not. But if it's valuable people uh, to people, they should be able to create it. Um, I think that one of the neat things you can get with Bitcoin is you, regardless of how, you know, that stabilized Uh, Daily currency works, the unit of account currency works, and regardless of whatever its security properties are, it could be backed with um, very strong Bitcoin behind it. Um, And then maybe you're willing to take some, you know, trade-off where where you lose some security over how that that system works. That, that, you know, maybe to get around problems like minor censorship, you build a stabilized currency that has some central banker signing off on its peg rate. Uh, And, you know, that would be attractive to some people. And I may think those people are foolish, but they should have the ability to, to try out that idea.
3: Yeah, I mean, so we, we don't know where Bitcoin is going in terms of its kind of wider use, you know, for the use of it to grow for international settlement or actually to reach unit of account status. Um, so that's, that's quite hazy and speculative. I mean, we can see it grew very fast over the last few years. so you know, within a few more years some surprising things might come to pass and there can be some political interest to see a genuinely neutral currency exist that isn't within the kind of remit of a given country or group of countries uh, to, you know, do quantitative easing or have political influence over it. So they, they could be interest in that and I suppose you could draw some loose analogy to the gold standard which survived, you know, for I don't know, 6,000 years or something, plus or minus, depending on how you look at it, and was actually used internationally. You know, I mean, currencies like uh, coins issued by reputable central banks, gold, physical gold coins were accepted internationally for a long period of time. So I don't, I don't know if that necessarily works in, in this day and age, but maybe. Um, and, yeah. and also you can look at gold and see that even gold is relatively volatile at this point in time. So it is, yeah. And I mean, the other thing is that you could look at a blockchain. I mean, a blockchain is a good sort of uh, financial networking technology for storing all kinds of things, be they shares issued by companies that have some intrinsic right to ownership of the company to you know allocate new share issues and sell those units or what have you. But also, fiat currencies could be issued into a blockchain format, and there's something interesting about the ability to do that. So, you know, um, a central bank could make some assertions about their intent. So, uh, monetary policy committees have usually some uh, remit and um, self-imposed or political constraints. So, you know, objectives around the inflation rate or state assurances about the level of quantitative easing they would engage in different... Um, market conditions and some of those things could be expressed as a smart monetary policy statement and enforced by a blockchain so if you took a weak currency and I guess there are a few hundred currencies in the world and we're maybe more used to dealing with the top 50 to 25 of them but some of the lower ones are quite volatile and have uh, currency exchange controls and hyperinflation and volatility that if one of those weaker currencies were to issue its uh, currency onto a blockchain, and uh, together with an assurance that it wouldn't engage in you know more than two percent quantitative easing, and the blockchain could enforce that, that, that could add to the attractiveness of that currency because they would basically be voluntarily um, ceding some political control to to the sort of
1: to provide a stronger currency assurance. So uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, the issue of mining centralization, right? So, because I, 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 in, in my view, there have been a few sort of main criticisms of Bitcoin, right? And I, I totally agree with you that the idea of the stable cryptocurrencies, well, it's very very attractive, but so far there are no implementations, although some people told me this new bits thing, but I haven't looked into it. Uh, so, so there's mostly that thing, but... Uh, at least uh, Robert Sam's paper, it's not implemented and it's more complex. So there definitely will be additional risks. So maybe it doesn't work. But the other thing is the whole question of the security of mining and whether Bitcoin mining really is fit uh, and will be fit to back the security of a network potentially worth uh, you know hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars. Uh, what are your views on that?
3: Well, so I mean, the, the Bitcoin network has gone through different phases of relative centralization. And some of the centralization we see is artificial in the sense that it could be removed with simple protocol changes. So, for example, when you use a pool, often people are seeding their vote of uh, which transaction set is valid to the pool, even though they have their own hash rate. And that's not technically necessary. I mean, you could run your own full node to decide on which transactions you think should go in the next block, and then separately use the pool to reduce variance in mining. Those those things don't have to be tied together. So if we could see those separated, um, the mining centralization would look a lot better than it does right now. But there is obviously some centralization arising from people who um, actually own their own Basics. And there's, there's a kind of reverse of that. So maybe Greg, you want to talk about the smart property. Right. <clears throat> so
2: um, there's another angle on this where mining centralization occurs because people will, uh, they often co-locate their mining hardware in places where energy is inexpensive, uh, where it can be held in one spot. And there's some diseconomies of scale that show up when you put a lot of mining in one place. It's expensive to cool, it's expensive to get the power to the location, um, but but there are still plenty of reasons to, to have large mining facilities. And so these mining facilities become, uh, they become risk points for the network. They're places where someone could seize control of the facility and have a bunch of hash power which they could use to attack the network. So one of the ideas that I've been working on with a number of other people is building... Uh, sort of next generation mining ASICs that have intelligence in them so that they have an idea who their who their actual owner is and when that owner is different than the person who sort of has, you know, physical proximity to it. So the idea is that there's some keys that are known inside the mining chip. And then the work you tell the, when you compute your consensus vote, you tell your mining chip what to mine, has to be signed or authenticated with those keys. Uh, so that the, the mining hardware only only follows its actual owner. And the actual owner could be far separated, right? Like, you know, the mining hardware is in a data center in Iceland, but the owner is, you know, in Idaho. And what that means is that then this physical facility is less of a point of centralization risk because somebody who gets physical control of the facility, all they can do is, you know, turn it off, Um, or they can begin a very expensive process of trying to decap each of the mining ASICs and trying to extract the private
3: keys, which which isn't practical. So, I mean, you can think of that as a kind of uh, smart lease, you know? So if you buy a mining contract or you buy the ASIC, but it's housed by somebody else, you can opt to use this new feature of the ASIC to program it to say, well, I just bought a 12-month mining contract, and so this chip will itself defend against anybody requesting it to mine anything that I haven't signed for that period of time, after which it might change its control or it might you know, remain in my control and I take physical delivery of it. So it gives you the flexibility to further separate ownership from the physical location of the chip. Yeah, there's, there's, there's um, a number of technical measures like
2: these that can be used to improve the centralization of mining and this has been real important to us because obviously keeping mining very decentralized is essential to the security of Bitcoin and anything that depends on it, right? Um, it's essential to the Bitcoin network and to the Bitcoin currency and any side chains. Um, so there are a bunch of tools we can use to improve it. Um, and we're not sure what level of impact those tools will have yet. Right.
3: And I, I mean, you could say also, I mean, I think you maybe were asking a higher level question, like geopolitically longer term, that longer term... Other, you know, there, there is a metro incentive to see decentralization because if, if a cryptocurrency as embodied by Bitcoin is going to have wider use and more value is going to depend on its integrity, now central banks and countries, uh, all these kinds of people and large Bitcoin ecosystem players and payment processors and exchanges all have a strong interest for there to be decentralization. And so there's an easy way to achieve that, which is they just buy and maintain a small percentage of the hash rate each. So, you know, if you imagine in the far future where some segment of, uh, you know, large companies on stock exchanges are involved in finance, which is using blockchain technology, and they're, let's say, you know, a thousand of them worldwide, maybe between them they own like 50% of the hash rate independently, and like the public at large and other interested people own some, then, there is decentralization and it's very difficult for somebody to take that away from them, right? It becomes a kind of a balance of power kind of structure. I mean, right now it's sort of enthusiasts and some companies, some sort of people doing it as a profit-making enterprise. But if you were in this position, you wouldn't even need to make a profit, right? You could just aim to make not too large of a loss to retain the decentralization. and if you're taking a small loss because you depend on the decentralization of the network, it's very hard to compete against a loss. Yeah. You, you could make a bigger loss, but then that's, that's not attractive to do.
1: Well, I mean, one problem that I see with this is this is sort of a public good scenario, You, know? you and um, I don't know if I would buy this, that this would actually work, but my maybe bigger question uh, relates to proof of stake wouldn't, isn't that just in, in case uh, it, you know, one gets some sort of good working solution uh, superior because, you know, it, it essentially the security is yeah. the value of the whole network, not just a subset, which is the, the value of the actual hardware. You, you, you have a key, a key point here is
2: that if someone gets a good solution and it, and it seems so, you know, time travel is also fantastic if someone gets a good solution. Uh, perpetual motion is also a good thing if someone gets so a good solution. So you don't believe it's possible? So I was very excited when the first proposals around proof of stake um, came out in 2011 and thought like, okay, this is going to radically change our risk factors in the future. But um, on deeper analysis, we ran into some, some really fundamental problems that i that basically you can only work around by making a very different security trade-off where you abandon civil resistance or you rely on centralized signers. And we've seen this in systems that have been deployed out in the wild where they've deployed proof of stake systems which were attacked and then they resolve them by applying things like a developer signing signing blocks to prevent reorganizations. if it were actually viable it would be very interesting but it seems that it's probably not without some different security model and different security models can be okay um, but they're harder to analyze and it's not it's not clear that you it's clear that you don't get the same thing you get from bitcoin it's not clear if the thing you get is is actually useful
3: um, yeah so a couple of things to add maybe so one is there's a sort of uh economic principle to mining So there's a kind of mining commodity price that the market finds where miners will be willing to expend up to the current market price of the commodity to mine it. And so if you radically change the cost of getting coins, presuming there is still mining going on, there's a potential for that economic self-interest to flow somewhere else, right? To result in buying political favors or influencing this committee or influencing the committee that's handing out coins or you know attacking host security or you know that that built up economic demand has to go somewhere so it's maybe not necessarily a bad thing that a commodity costs has a production cost right so add a little more color on the the proof of stake uh
2: system, right? There's basically a general, a generalized counter argument that, that you can basically take any proof of stake system and say, well, okay, what happens if you just, uh, you own some coins, say you owned all the coins at the beginning of the network. Um, the network goes on, you sell your coins, you exit the network, but then later you show back up with your original coins and create a simulated network, a, a second fork of it. And you show it to someone who's new to the system and they can't distinguish between the honest network and the dishonest network. So that's, that's a very fundamental difference. And so what you basically end up having to do to fix that is to say, okay, well, we're not actually going to use proof-of-stake as our consensus mechanism. We're going to use, like, ask a friend as a consensus mechanism. And you can do that, but it has a very different security model. It's what Bitcoin explicitly doesn't do because ask a friend is incredibly difficult to automate in a secure way because of civil attacks, you know, people who pretend to be many entities in order to rig the state of the system. So it, it's a process that gives you a very, I think the proof of stake of it is really a distraction, right? The security of that system reduces to whatever you do to, to repair the nothing at stake attack. And sometimes those trade-offs are good in some environments and maybe they're not good in others.
3: Yeah, oft- often it seems to degrade into a different proof of work, which is to grind alternate transaction histories to find one which results in you receiving the coins. So... You know, if, that, if that's how it degrades, you're better off to stick to a proof of work because you can build ASICs for it, which avoid... I mean, so if you, if you were to be able to find a proof of work that can't be optimized by ASICs, which, which seems generally impossible, but hypothetically, then um, it's vulnerable to you know, renting equipment on a temporary basis, so going and renting a large portion of Amazon's cloud computing infrastructure. So you really don't want short-term renting of mining equipment and if mining equipment is generic, as would be the case for you know, grinding alternate transaction histories for proof of stake, then you have a problem there. So I mean, if if somebody finds a solution, I mean, as Greg said, he was interested in it until he saw the limitations. And if somebody does mm-hmm. find some magic that solves it, great. You know, Bitcoin would be very happy to see that happen and would adopt it. So so,
2: so if this is interesting to you, you should look. Um, so Andrew uh, Andrew Polstra wrote a, a little white paper that sort of summarizes this, the the Common deep technical understanding. yeah so it's it's got some good information although it, what it doesn't try to do is do a point by point rebuttal of the infinite series of sort of ad hoc patches that people have tried to do to, to get around the fundamental issues um, but that's pretty interesting um, and I, and I recommend people familiarize themselves with that it's uh, some good food for thought um, but yeah, if it, if it's made to work in a model that gives good security, it would be it would be useful to use. It's Just uh, I haven't seen it yet. And a lot of the things we've seen proposed recently for proof of stake are actually older ideas that had shown up on Bitcoin Talk and in Bitcoin Wizards a couple of years ago, and had sort of been discarded because they the goal really there was people were trying to get proof of stake to offer a decentralization and security like Bitcoin's, and you know couldn't couldn't use some of these ideas to achieve it. But maybe they're they're still useful if you're willing to make some different trade-offs in the security model.
1: Well, maybe at some point we will have to to come back to this topic because it's 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 one that's also been coming up, uh, and we I, it'd be really interesting, I think, to to spend some time uh, really digging into that because. So, what is the the timeline for uh, for sidechains? When when by what time and date do you think you're gonna this is going to be implemented, or what parts of it are going to be implemented, at what what time?
2: Sure. So, what we've been trying, is we've published the the initial white paper and gotten um, sort of a very widespread response to that, and I, th- I consider it a big success. Not just not really because of the excitement it's created, though there's certainly been a bunch of that, but because um, lots of people have reviewed it and commented on it, and haven't um, haven't surprised us with any sort of deep fundamental flaws that you know weren't brought up in the paper and that, that you know were unknown. So that that's sort of a big point of success. What we've been trying to do with the work that we're doing on side chains is um, to avoid exhausting review capacity. So there's this problem in the cryptocurrency ecosystem in general where someone will propose some system, and you know I walk up and go you know nope insecure I break it this way, toast, and then. They'll go, okay, okay, I'll fix that, and they apply some Band-Aid, and then I'll walk up, and then it takes me you know, 10 minutes to break it, and then they apply some Band-Aid, and it takes me an hour to break it, and then they apply some more Band-Aids, and some other people come, and they break it after weeks of work, and at the end, you get this sort of patched-up system, which is maybe secure because no one knows how to break it right now, or maybe it's insecure because everyone got exhausted in reviewing it. And so what we've been trying to do with the sidechains work is is there's this trade-off where we want to have a very interactive development process for this infrastructure, but at the same time, we don't want to exhaust review capacity by, you know, putting stuff out that people will analyze, and then it has, you know, it has easy shortcomings, and then it's sort of exhausting that review capacity. Um, but one of the things we came up with in the development of sidechains was a way to do this sort of soft launch of it where um, you can use all the sidechain technology but with, uh, with a weaker security model called the federated peg. So the idea is that, that instead of soft forking the changes into Bitcoin for a sidechain, you create a sidechain like normal, and then there's some uh, federation of functionaries. These are parties that hold private keys, and they'll sign transactions if the sidechain code would have permitted the transaction to occur. So they're sort of standing in as a protocol gateway adapter. Now, the trade-off is that if they wanted to, they could just steal the coins. Um, so there's some protection against that in that there would be a threshold of them. And so this is laid out in one of the appendixes of the sidechains white paper. And what it lets us do is release sidechain software. People can start using it. They could use it with real Bitcoin, real value, just reduce security because of the risk the Federation steals the coins. Um, and then we can gain experience with the technology and show that it's useful to people and that it has value and that, you know, that it's realistic and that the software can mature. And so we're planning on publishing um, an implementation and a demo of doing that in the next month or two. And I'm not giving really concrete timeframes because sort of, it, this is cryptographic protocols and it doesn't do anyone any good to release something that's trivially insecure. And so it's sort of done when it's done. And then beyond that, we have to see where it goes from there. It'll take some time for the initial system to mature and for people to gain confidence enough to start saying, okay, well, where can we start introducing the soft-forking additional script opcodes to to make it so you can do it without the functionaries, without the the federation?
1: So by by what time do you think uh, we will have uh, some of these sidechains running? I mean, there may be the lower security ones with the federated pegs.
2: Yeah, just a couple months—two months, one month, two months. Oh, yeah, we have them. Sort of like the people working on it have privately versions of it that run today, and we have for we have for some time now. It's just that the, it's all immature and buggy, and uh, you know, not really ready. Not really ready to burn people's review cycles on it. And I don't want to publish it and then have people go, "Oh yeah, this I can crash it like this." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, we know that it's a demo." Uh, <laughs> it's got to have some level of integrity before it before it uh, is really worth people's time to review, but um, the actual technology is very easy to develop in the context of just the federated peg. So,
1: well, I don't know if you want to maybe very very briefly the idea. So, with Blockstream, uh, you guys raised uh, quite a lot of uh, funding. What is the business model behind this, or? Are the investors who put in money, do they think of this more as a sort of a public good? That, and, and maybe they are also Bitcoin holders and they think this makes sense because it, it increases sort of indirectly maybe the value of their, their Bitcoins.
2: So there's, there's definitely an element of um, public good here. And in particular, the, uh, a special form of public good, right, which is you know, building infrastructure that Bitcoin needs going forward. Um, but there's there's also other business angles on this because um, th- there's a line of thinking um, that I agree with, which is that sort of the the best kind of charity is self-supporting, right? That you can build a business and the business will receive money because it's doing things people want. And then you can use that to do more good, build more infrastructure. And that's a more sustainable model than just uh, you know putting money down a hole and hoping some good comes out of the other end. So it turns out that once you have you know, the sort of future vision of a world where where Bitcoin is infinitely flexible because you're not stuck in one network. There are many businesses that you can create out of that. Uh, But you have to get to that first. So one of the reasons that we raised a fairly large amount of money was to be able to have the runway to go and give a decent shot at building this complex, secure cryptographic infrastructure required to make the other folds of the business possible. And so to give you a taste of some of the other things that we're doing, I mean, what we're doing is far beyond side chains, is taking some of the cryptographic concepts of Bitcoin, uh, these decentralized, provable, secure systems, and extending them out into the greater business world. So allowing institutions to make proofs about their books and their finances, and tying that back in um, to the to the Bitcoin blockchain. So being able to make smart contracts which are dependent on those. But to actually make that real and make it worthwhile, Bitcoin itself has to be more flexible. Another angle on this is that we we have a way to build um, bank-like services, uh, private servers that can achieve really high transaction volumes. Um, We're talking about tens of thousands of transactions per second, like the kind of thing you'd need to run in exchange in a cryptographically provable way but also can't seize people's funds so that they they're, have better security properties than the existing systems. But in order to make that kind of system possible, again, you need a kind of Bitcoin ecosystem which is more flexible and can speak to
3: um,
2: more powerful external systems.
3: So, I mean, I think um, Bitcoin has a lot of, I, mean, I think the smart property and smart contracting features of Bitcoin have a lot of potential beyond Bitcoin as a currency which is to say that you know your Bitcoin is also providing a kind of real-time audit capability, which is lacking in a financial system. When, when something goes wrong in a financial system, you don't tend to find out until a year or two later after an audit, kind of uh, we call them like post-mortem audits or something, right? You, you discover the problem and it's too late and you've got some economic collapse. And um, so with the blockchain-like mechanism and a real-time audit, it basically means that each unit of, value that you receive comes with a compact proof of you know full balanced books and audit of the entity that it comes from. So you know, if you build out into the further future where let's say a company and you know all the internet work companies eventually have their income and expenditure and dividends and shares all tracked on a blockchain, you can uh, avoid some systemic risk kind of effects right where you don't really know like the credit rating of a company or you know the credit rating is misleading or that it, it turns out it has some large undisclosed debts or you know it has a, a an insurance policy against some liabilities but the insurance company is overextended. extended so all those kinds of things can if they're all represented all those liabilities and assets and money flows are represented in a blockchain format with a real-time audit, you can potentially squeeze out a lot of systemic risk from the system. And one of the interesting things is because of some of the cryptographic features you can build, you can provide the companies with commercial confidentiality about who they have contracts with, what their profit margin on those contracts are, how large the values of you know, the recurring payments for a monthly service contracts. So all of those kind of things can be hidden from public view while simultaneously validated. So you can make the books add up without disclosing the values due to some kind of encrypted value stuff that can be made to work. Um, so I think that's a very interesting High value thing for humanity to get that kind of uh, assurance and I think ultimately you know regulators and policy makers and central bankers and businesses and society at large will value see that and see it as a way forward. But they're going to need help to migrate into
2: that new world and in order to make it really valuable for them it's going to need to tie into systems like Bitcoin and uh there's just a lot of cryptographic development we have to do to span from what the world is today to the world that we know is possible.
3: Right. And you and you see also some limitations in the Bitcoin ecosystem where people are over time improving the security mechanisms, right? So you know, most of the Bitcoin ecosystem isn't directly using smart contract assurances initially. You know, so where you have like a failed exchange like Mt. Gox, people are pretty much Trusting that in a conventional uh, creditworthiness, uh, prudently operated business sense. And then we're migrating, you know, people are talking and starting to deploy multi-signatures. And ultimately, actually, the business logic can potentially be implemented in and enforced by the blockchain. So to give an example, you know, let's say if you had uh an account with some Bitcoin in it and you wanted to impose a daily spending limit. So right now that might look like a multi-signature where you have a smartphone that you might lose or what have you, or might get compromised and there's a central server somewhere that makes a second signature and it won't sign if you go over the transaction volume for the day. So the problem is that's, you know, that's a step forward improvement but if something compromises a central server, those limitations no longer apply. So with a bit of work in extending the smart contracting ability, you can have the blockchain enforce that business logic. And that, that extends and scales ultimately to, you know, you, you wanna be programming to get the most assurance by having the blockchain as a kind of um, narrow AI that's perfectly honest enforcing these rules. So I think, there's, yeah, I think there's- that's where the future lies in the longer term.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a need for, for this kind of thing, and uh, the capabilities to actually implement those is going to be, you know, they're going to be extremely rare. So uh, I'm sure uh, you guys will be in a, in a, great, in a great place to, uh, to help making a lot of these things come true. Now, um, we're, we're kind of at the end uh, of our show. We went very long. I think this is, may have been our longest episode ever, or like <laughs> maybe second longest or something. Um, so th- uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I must say it was it's a, such a complex project and, and my understanding of it has been a little bit turned upside down. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of uh, the aspects. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. Thank you, it was fun, thanks. Um, so if people want to learn more, uh, I think the best way is probably uh, your website, uh, blockstream.com. Is there some, uh, some other place you want to point people to? Sidechains White Paper is a good place if people haven't read it yet. Uh, and then uh, I encourage
2: people to go and read what's being written about out in the wider community. Right. Ultimately, if this stuff's going to be adopted and used in the Bitcoin space, it's more than about what we're saying about it.
1: Absolutely, and and we definitely look forward to to some of those first side chains coming out and, and being able to try them out and, and see how they work. Yeah. Um. And yeah. So thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks so much for you know all our listeners uh, to listening uh, to this episode. Uh, we will be back uh, next week. Uh, and if you want to, you know, you want to support show, you can follow us on Twitter at EpcenterBTC. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or um, sign up for a newsletter, which goes out well once a month now. Although we we'll also be sending out the episodes on there and you can do that at AppCenterBitcoin.com newsletter. So thanks so much. And we look forward uh, to being back soon.